Hello and welcome to an incredibly exciting episode of Ecolution. We've had many guests on the show, but I can't tell you how crazy it is to welcome an actual, real-life president onto the podcast. The first female president of Ireland, former UN Commissioner for Human Rights, Chair of the Elders and fellow podcaster, Mrs Mary Robinson. Welcome to Ecolution. Thank you very much, Evie, for that warm welcome. <laughs> so, okay, on to the business in hand. We put out a call out to young people across the country and they came back with so many questions that I'm not sure we'll get through them at all. But are you on to give it a go? Yeah, please. Okay, so let's go. First up is Liam in third class in Cashel and 13-year-old anti-cycles ambassador Shreya from Greystones. What inspired you to set up the Mary Robinson Foundation and what brought your attention to climate justice? It's a good question by Liam and Shreya because I hadn't realised that climate was so unfair. Uh, I hadn't understood when I was president that it was hitting the most vulnerable countries, poor countries. So I didn't make any speech about climate during my seven years as president. But after I had been high commissioner, I had a small NGO, a small organisation that was working in African countries on the rights that matter if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, education, shelter. And everywhere I went, I kept hearing things are so much worse. And it was because of the shocks of climate. They weren't affecting Ireland, they weren't affecting Europe, but they were affecting these poor countries because they were vulnerable and poor people and indigenous people. And I realized it was hitting women and children most of all because they were even more vulnerable. And so I decided I needed to explain the injustice by talking about climate justice. I almost never mention climate change. I talk about the climate crisis because it is a crisis, but I talk most about climate justice, meaning we have to understand the injustices, the unfairness. That's brilliant, thank you. So next we have Torin, Shreya, Daniel and Oren, who all ask, why after you stopped being president, you went over to help climate change and poor people? Why did you specifically focus on vulnerable and poor people in your foundation? Well, I think I was always keen, even when I was a lawyer, to take cases for the tenant against the landlord, for the poor person, for the young boy in detention who hadn't got due process, that that kind of case. They, They interested me a lot. Even more so when I saw that depth of unfairness in our world, it seemed to me that's a real human rights issue to try to be a voice and help and understanding of how unequal our world is and how the shocks are much worse for those who don't have a capacity, don't have insurance, don't have money in the bank, don't have you know, lots of advisors to help them to cope with problems. So I think I've always had this kind of instinct of wanting to see justice done. And uh, so now I'm just going to continue. Okay, so next we hear from Emma Gallagher from Ashburn. You talk a lot about the women that you've met at grassroots level throughout your book. Why do you think there's such a driving force towards change? I'm actually very impressed, I must say, Emma, by the women that I've met who come out of their own community in the sense of being very much part of their community and really make change. Making change in your own community is stunningly impressive. You know, a lot of leaders talk about making change and nothing happens. But when you make change at home in your community, that's really impressive. And I've met so many who've done really extraordinary things, usually by grouping women together. So you have a women's group. And then that women's group 
isn't hierarchical. You know, it's, there are no egos around. It's all about working together collaboratively, listening to each other and solving problems. And I've seen women do that over and over again. I've learned a lot and I champion uh, grassroots women changing their communities because it's stunning. It's really impressive. It is. It's really amazing. And it's amazing mm. that people can really achieve that. I think it's really great. Uh, is there any women that really inspire you? Hindu Omara Ibrahim is part of a Maasai tribe in French-speaking Chad, but she taught herself English. I mean, French is a foreign language in Africa. She taught herself English to communicate. And it was very hard for her to even go to school. Her father exceptionally let her go to school. And because she used to be with her grandmother milking cows, the school children bullied her. At your age, Evie, at the age of 14, she was bullied because she smelt of milk as far as her colleagues were concerned. And that made her fight for her own rights, fight for justice. And she went on to become the chair of the whole indigenous group in the conference on climate. And that's when I first met her. She was about 30 at the time, beautiful young woman speaking for her whole indigenous world of you know 400 million people because they trusted her in the conference because they, they knew she knew her people well. After the Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans and East Biloxi, a wonderful woman, Karen, she became a kind of accidental activist. She had a salon and she loved talking to the women who came in to get their hair done and their nails done. She was African-American on the wrong side of the tracks, as she said. So when the hurricane hit, it devastated her much more than better off people. She lost everything and became very poor. And when she came to the climate conference in Copenhagen because of the actions she was taking with her community, she met with another heroine of mine from Uganda, Constance O'Kellett. She's a grandmother like me, and her home was destroyed by a storm. And the two of them sat and compared notes. And I really felt it was so interesting to see two women from completely different parts of the world who had been reduced to the humiliation of real poverty being able to talk to each other about how bad it was and what they did and how they helped their community and how they learned from each other. It's really great to hear because you are a, a massive inspiration of mine and you know several other young people and older people and it's just really great to hear your inspiration as an inspiration. I think it's brilliant. Right, moving back on to the questions from Freya in Mayo. I recently read about uncontacted tribes in the Amazon. Do you think the reason why they don't want to be part of the modern world is because they know that we're not looking after environment and they're very close to nature? Well, it's very true that indigenous peoples, indigenous tribes are not just close to nature, they are nature. When you speak to an indigenous person, they'll often say to you, I am the forest, I am the trees, I am the mountain. That's the way they see it. And that's why they know if we're doing damage to the trees or to the water or to nature, we're damaging them. If only we could have even a tiny part of that wisdom that we're not separate from nature, we're actually of nature. Some tribes want to keep away from so-called civilization, A, because it can bring them diseases that they are not protected from, B, it brings them bad habits they don't like. Often the reason that people want to go into the area of the forest is either to cut down the trees or to do mining, both of which would be bad for them. So it's understandable. But also indigenous communities are saving the forests all over the world. Brilliant. So now we're going to move on to questions on what we're doing. Finn from Cashel asks, What is the most damaging thing we are doing to the environment at the moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think 
what we're doing is we're damaging the ecosystems as a whole. We're producing emissions that are warming our world dramatically. And that's causing all kinds of damage down the way. We're also causing damage to the oceans, acidification and plastic in the oceans. And that's destroying sea life and fish. And the heat is destroying the coral reefs that so many fish depend on. So it's that kind of systemic change. We're not understanding that nature is our huge friend. Nature is absorbing so much carbon. But if we treat nature so badly, nature could turn against us. That's what the scientists are afraid of. That's what they call the tipping points, when nature suddenly turns the other way and becomes part of the problem because it's out of control. And we're not there yet, and we, I hope we never get there, but that's what they're talking about. So we should be very respectful of nature, and we should be understanding that our best future is in front of us. You know, I want you young people to keep saying that. Your best future is in front of you because you're going to have a future of clean energy. You remember at the very start of COVID, everybody was talking about the air being cleaner. We could hear the birds singing. People felt closer to nature. We want to be like that all the time. We want cities that are green and then more cycling, more bus routes, et cetera, less cars, even electric cars. And we want countryside that is natural farming, conservative farming. Farmers are very good at conservation. They just need to be encouraged to move more and more in that direction. Just a question for myself. Do you think the pandemic positively affected the climate crisis? It showed us, Evie, in a very short time that we could reduce. It showed us that collective behaviour matters. That was probably the more important lesson because the collective behaviour I'm talking about was new things we had to do, like washing our hands all the time, like keeping away from each other, which isn't our natural thing, not hugging and not being close to each other and staying at home. Now we have to learn new behaviour for this world we're in, which is being much more efficient on energy, changing to clean energy, not doing waste as much as possible, even changing our diet a bit. I've made a commitment to be a pescatarian, meaning I don't eat meat anymore, except I have to confess, Evie, I cheated during COVID because I was with my meat-eating husband, the two of us on our own, and it would have been a waste of food. And I do like meat still, even though I'm giving it up for climate, but everybody can make a bit of effort. And that's behavior change. And when you change behavior, you know, consumers can speak collectively and then manufacturers realize we shouldn't be producing fashion to throw away, instant stuff, plastic, all of that. We should use and reuse things and learn that these are things that have taken out of nature to make them. So be careful about them and reuse them. When I was growing up, I learned to sew and to darn to put on buttons, et cetera. And my brothers had hand-me-down clothes. I had four brothers. And, you know, we need to relearn that. There's nothing wrong with that. It makes a family happier somehow when you're together in seeing what you can do to actually uh, do your bit for climate. Thank you so much. So next we have Milo from Dunleary. In our home, we try to make changes to stop climate change. But are the individuals' actions enough? Or is it down to big industries and how they operate? But well, first of all, Milo, I'm delighted that you are doing your bit, as I was describing, because we have to all do that. But of course, that's not enough. You're quite right. We have to make sure that we keep the focus on the big emitters, big governments, but also big oil companies and gas companies and especially coal companies. They have to get out of producing especially new areas that they're looking for, because we have enough fossil fuel in the world to destroy the world. We don't need any more. And, you know, we see in this country, peat, turf, and we have 400 workers who are having to be laid off. 
and the Irish government has its just transition. Um, and I actually am quite impressed by what's been done in the Midlands. It may not be perfect, but it is a big effort to make sure that the workers are not forgotten and their communities are not forgotten and that they get as good a future as anyone else, that they're part of the future because they get the clean energy projects and they get rewilding of the bog that's going to soak more carbon into the ground and so on. And other countries with coal have to do their just transition and honour the workers in doing it. It's a very, very important part of what I call climate justice. So Luke, who's eight, wants to know why big companies keep on selling plastic even though if it's so bad for the environment. And around here I always see my um, neighbours and other people, my friends, when picking up plastic on the streets and on the beach and everywhere. Plastic is very prevalent. It's going to take a lot of effort, and I'm glad to see that effort is happening. Schools and universities are really saying, we don't want any more plastic. And I see my grandchildren with their permanent bottles, a proper way to do it. And if we say we don't like plastic, we won't buy plastic in shops, we won't have plastic bags. I was recently in an African country called Rwanda that you may have heard of. And in the aeroplane bringing me from Amsterdam in in the Netherlands to Rwanda, the pilot said, If you bought anything duty-free in the airport with plastic, leave your plastic on board or you will be fined. And I was so proud of them. They will not allow plastic into the country. You don't see plastic in Rwanda. Now, if they can do it as a poor African country, surely we can do it. That's brilliant. That's actually, that's really, that blew my mind a little bit. That's really, really amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I was Um, very very impressed. Yeah, that's really incredible. If only Ireland did that now. So Alyssa, who is 11, and Joshua from Belvedere, which is part of the Sustainable Schools Network, both asked... How can children put big pressure on big companies to do more for the environment? Thank you. Well, I have to say it's a mixed bag of big companies. There are some big companies who are really stepping up. I'm quite closely involved with what is called the B team of business leaders. And every single one of them talks like me. They really get it. And they usually have children and grandchildren, and they know they have to step up, and they are doing so. The trouble is, they're kind of a a good group in a much larger whole that still isn't doing it. And that's why it's good that children's voices speak up a lot and ask direct, honest questions. And I like that about children. They don't kind of compromise themselves. They just ask direct questions. And we need to ask a lot of questions of a lot of companies who could be doing a lot more. But there are companies who are really changing, and that's important. That gives me hope. You know, this better future is still just around the corner. We can get there, and we have to get there. And these companies have a big responsibility. So let's, let's make them do it. Yes, put in the real effort. Okay, so next we have Avril, who's originally from Chile in South America. And she asks, If emissions don't go down, what is the total urban population that is in risk of sea level rise? And secondly, how can we protect these coastal communities from rising sea level? That's a very important question, Abril. And I'm not sure I can give you as accurate an answer as I should. But I remember being at a conference in the UN not very long ago when a very knowledgeable leader of a very big organization stood up and said, do you know that there are about 78 million people who live in low coastal areas around the world. So if sea level rise goes up only a small amount, they go under. And of course, we're talking small island states, needless to say. But 78 million was his figure. I'm not sure. I mean, it depends on how near the coast you go. But it's true that very many countries 
the cities are on the coast. Here in Ireland, Dublin and Cork are at considerable risk of parts going under if we have significant sea rise. And certainly what Ireland is likely to face if things get worse is more intensity of rain and flooding. Sun at the wrong time, which dries out and farmers will complain of drought. They're the two things that I would worry about from an Irish point of view. But this is all the reason why we want to make sure that we take the right steps. Our best future is before us. Keep repeating that. Our best future is before us. <laughs> okay, so next we have Cian, who is 10 and from Irish Town. I asked my mum last night, will humans be extinct in around 40 years? Or how would we live if the sea levels got really higher? What would you think? Well, that is the dilemma that we've begun to discuss. I mean, Cian is right. I'm not a pessimist at all. I'm a prisoner of hope because Archbishop Tutu, I learned so much from him, even before I was involved with the elders that I'm now the chair of, that Nelson Mandela brought together. But he always said, we have to have hope because hope makes us have the energy to take the steps that are necessary to prevent. So we're going to take the steps to prevent the extinction of species. But if we don't take those steps, we would be on course. But we're, we're too sensible for that. You know, we are intelligent, at least I know women are intelligent, and I think young people are intelligent. I'm not so sure about the men. I mean, they're a bit slower off the take, but, you know, they'll get there. So, Lila in Mayo asks, With all due respects to politicians, there seem many things being promised, and politicians say they have global warming and environmental justice in mind, but there seems so little being done and so much promises made. Do you think things will be sped up? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think a lot about that. I'll tell you why. I think governments are still too concerned about the immediate. Yes, you know, food and fuel prices are going up. We've got a war in Ukraine. These are all very heavy things. And they tend to think that climate is somehow of the future and they can worry about it later. But actually, that's not true. The gap is very narrow now to be able to take effective steps. So I'm very keen that children and young people and women leaders and religious groups, that we all speak up and up and up all the time. We're not going to tolerate politicians who don't take seriously their responsibility. We're not going to tolerate fossil fuel companies that are doing what scientists say will destroy us. We have to have the loudest voice until 2030, which is only seven and a half years away, because by 2030, we have to have reduced emissions by 45%. The scientists are very clear on that. We're not on course for that at the moment. So we need a big voice, pushing, demanding, questioning. The media are important as well. But I think, you know, if there's a broad societal movement, which we need, really, really, really saying, as the young climate activists have been saying, and we're so, I'm so impressed by them and have learned that the direct voice is very important. And don't underestimate your children's voices. I mean, these are brilliant questions that I'm getting, you know, and they're the right questions to ask of all politicians, you know, as much as possible. Yes, I think the youth voice is actually just really, really incredible of this generation. I think it's amazing yeah. and it's incredible to hear. Um, okay, so Neve Purcell uh, in TY, who's also part of the FSN, asks, How do you think we can stop people from thinking and feeling that the climate crisis won't affect them in their lifetime? Yeah, there, there still are quite a few people. You know, there are other issues that are preoccupying them. And I, and I do have sympathy for people, you know, who are on low income whose grandmother's sick and they're now faced with bills they can't afford, or a farmer who's worried about the price of fertilizer going up. And the, you know, people have preoccupations. But I think 
we actually need to rise a little bit above these preoccupations and realize this is very serious. This is about whether we're going to have a good future. That's worth worrying about. And I think the way to do it is to have good conversations around every table. Uh, I know a very good woman climate scientist. Her name is Catherine Hayhoe. She's written a very good book called Saving Us. And she starts by saying, we don't talk about climate enough. Now you children clearly do talk about it because your questions are great, but people don't talk enough about it around the table, around the community, wherever. I was very glad that the Irish Senate, the Shannad, is being used now to get young people to talk to senators about climate. I think this is exactly what is needed. More and more, we need to talk about it. The more we talk about it, the more we will realize we have all the other problems, but this really matters. Yeah, and I think it's really just about getting our voice out there, I think. Emma, again, from Ashburn. You have dedicated 20 years of your life as an activist into climate justice. And now after the pandemic, after everyone has had ample time and opportunity to reflect and reassess, I feel that everything has gone back to the way it was beforehand and nothing has changed. How do you not despair? Well, I mentioned Archbishop Tutu. And let me tell you, we were on a panel together in New York about 15 years ago with young people. And the young people were all on their iPhones and their iPads. And this was quite new 15 years ago. We were told it's possible that this conversation may be trending. And neither Archbishop Tutu nor myself knew what trending meant or any of this. It was completely new to us. But when Archbishop Tutu is in front of young people, he tells them how much he loves them. He was waving his arms, smiling, laughing, joking. And the moderator of our panel said quite sharply, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? And he looked at her, he smiled and he said, oh no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And I understood then, and I've thought about it a lot since, what he meant. If you talk about the climate crisis in terms of how terrible it is and how we're not on course for a safe world and the emissions are going up and the biodiversity is going down and the oceans are getting covered with plastic, then all the energy goes out of the room. People just put the head down and say, well, look, I can't cope with this. I just get on with my life. And that's not what we want. What we want is people to be prisoners of hope we have the energy to take the steps, small steps, big steps, bigger steps, even more ambitious steps, one after the other, in order to make sure that we turn things around. We have to turn things around. There's no doubt about that. But if we turn things around, our best future is before us. We have to look forward to that future. I think that's a great way to look, especially when people are dealing with eco-anxiety. I guess now I'd like to move on to some of the solutions, which are, of course, led by our young questioners. So first we have Paddy Shanahan, who's currently based in Bali. This year I've had the opportunity to visit Borneo, where they make a huge amount of their money from palm oil production, that which can be disastrous in terms of both habitat loss and the environment. My question is, can we offer them an alternative? Is there a future in which indigenous people are paid to remain guardians of the forest, instead of cutting them down to make way for palm oil? Well, I must say, Paddy is having a very interesting experience being in Bali and seeing firsthand the way that the palm oil plantations do destroy the forests. We need palm oil for so many things, but actually it's very destructive, very destructive. I think it's really important, as I was saying earlier, to recognize that indigenous communities save the forests. They live, they're part of, they are of nature. They know how to do it. And there, there are schemes, not all of them work too well, the Red Plus and other schemes to help to preserve forests. 
and to help to preserve communities within forests. But unfortunately, both with logging, cutting down trees and the palm oil industry, there's a lot of money being made on the other side. And we just have to get rid of that. We have to get out of those kinds of products. You know, we're all consumers who, if we think about it enough, can collectively change in what we buy and how we use it and what we throw away or don't throw away, what we reuse. Yeah, I think COVID really did show how much we actually can change. So this next question actually came in without a name, but it is a very, very good question. How can developed countries like Ireland help support developing countries in their journey towards a fossil-free future? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you included it. It's an excellent question because it's a justice question, actually, because believe it or not, Ireland is part of that world of fossil fuel that has created injustices to developing countries in the fact that they are more vulnerable. So climate hits them more quickly. It's more vulnerable to women because their social roles are more limited and they don't have the same power, don't have the same access to credit, et cetera. Maybe don't even have land rights to try and combat the shocks. I have to say, I do think Irish aid works very well with developing countries on this. Irish aid has been way ahead of Irish government and Irish people in understanding the injustices of climate. And I'm really pleased about that. And there's no doubt that developed countries must help. I mean, at the last conference, we saw what could be a good model at a bigger level where a number of countries said they would provide $8.5 billion to South Africa, which is 80% dependent on coal to get out of coal, knowing that South Africa, without help from outside, probably won't be able to do that. Now, that's a good move. We need to see more of that. It isn't working perfectly. There's room for improvement even on that. But it's the idea of a kind of solidarity. Do you see I still wear the badge of the Sustainable Development Goals? When that was brought about, and there was, you know, our Irish ambassador was at the heart of it and, and the language of it, it was all about leaving no one behind and showing solidarity. Similarly, the Paris Agreement was all about solidarity and helping the poorest countries to go green more quickly. But we didn't see it happen. They didn't get the investment. They didn't get the skills, the training, even the intellectual property. And now they're faced with a closing window and being able to use gas and coal and that which they've found in their countries. So it's one injustice after another, as far as they're concerned. And so it's not just being kind because we're a kind people. It's actually there's a justice dimension to it which I think makes it more imperative that we do it. That was brilliant, thank you. Okay, so our next question is from Callum from Cashel, and he asks, You have been president of Ireland. Was that job more important than the job you are doing now? Well, Callum, let me put it this way. Being elected president of Ireland was certainly the greatest honour that I have ever had or ever could possibly have expected to have. And for those seven years, I remember waking up every morning and I felt... I need to work as hard as I can and as well as I can, because I have the privilege of being president of Ireland. You know, I had another interesting job after that as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. It brought me into a wider sense of how unequal our world is, how unfair it is, how we need to fight for human rights and and justice. Now I'm in a role where we don't have power and I'm an elder, I'm just an, an old person now. But we as elders have a wisdom that we want to share with, and and in particular share with young people, and learn from young people. The elders were brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007 to work for peace and human rights, knowing that we 
were no longer actively seeking jobs or anything. We were independent and we had accumulated a certain knowledge and wisdom and we were keen to be of service. When we were brought together, we found that collectively we could do more than we could have just individually. And we had a great chair to begin with, Archbishop Tutu, and then we had Kofi Annan as our chair, who was a former Secretary General of the United Nations. And now I'm the chair of the elders. So I actually feel a great responsibility in that job as well. I'm very privileged that I've had jobs that are quite important in that sense. But the greatest honour was to be President of Ireland. There's no doubt about that. Thank you so much. So our final question is from Aoife, who is six and from Dublin, as well as Juno who's 11 from Dublin. I'm very worried about climate change and I'm wondering what can I do to help the environment? Bye. Well, I think that's a really good question. And I would say don't underestimate your power. Children have a a power to speak out, to speak in the family, to speak in school, to speak up and to say, you know, are we doing enough, etc. But not to feel that you have the major responsibility. I made it clear in an earlier question. We all need to do our bit. But the biggest responsibility is with governments and with fossil fuel companies and investors in fossil fuel and all those big guys out there. They need to do what they need to do. But it is important that we all treat this as a crisis. And when it's a crisis, you you take steps. So every family should be taking steps. And I love a phrase that Kofi Annan used a lot, and it seems a very suitable answer to this question. And listen carefully now, all of you, to this. You are never too young to lead, and you are never too old to learn. That should give you confidence. Thank you so much. And with that, that's our final question. I can't believe we got through them. Thanks to all (laughs) of our brilliant questioners for such a huge variety of topics. Mrs. Robinson, I can't thank you enough for coming on Ecolution. It has been a total pleasure to speak with you. Is there any final thought or call to action you'd like to share with us before we finish up? Well, first of all, I'm really impressed with you, Evie. You know, you seem a very accomplished moderator and star and interviewer, and nothing phases you. There were a couple of moments there when others would be thrown. No, you kept on brilliantly. I don't really have a final word, except I think we need to do this more often, this intergenerational conversation. I'm a real believer in that. And I was glad to be invited to this particular podcast because I think maybe just a difference in the intergenerational conversation from when I was growing up. I had a beloved grandfather. He was a retired lawyer who taught me about justice. And he spoke about the cases he took for the tenants against the landlords. And I, I loved that he didn't know how to talk to a child. So he talked to me as if I was an adult. And I got kind of oxygen of being treated as an adult. And I loved it. But I wouldn't have dreamt of saying anything to him. It was a one way. Now it's not. Because you young people are digitally smart. You're connected. Look at the questions I've been asked, how deep and wide they are. You've got a breadth of vision. And so the conversation is much more learning from each other. Never too young to lead, never too old to learn. So this intergenerational conversation I'm passionate about, and I'm glad to have had this opportunity. Thank you so much. Actually, it has been really amazing for me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Um, And just the last thing before we go, I just was wondering, where can people find out more about the work that you're doing now? Well, if they go into the website of the elders, the elders.org, that shows the work of the elders that I'm chair of, but also the podcast, Mothers of Invention. I have a book on climate justice. It has two bylines. One of them is climate justice, hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future. And then there's a paperback version, which took a different byline from our podcast, 
which is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And I always explain that man-made is generic, we're all responsible, and a feminist solution includes as many men and boys as possible, because it's the solution that is collaborative, listening, no egos, not hierarchical, and wants to take the hard decisions if necessary to get to where we need to get to. And that's what we need. That's the kind of solutions we need. Thank you so much. Okay. This is really incredible. Thank you so much. Not at all. And uh, all the best, Evie. Now you're going to you go too. far. <laughs> you're oh, going to go very thank far. You. <laughs> okay. Guys, President Mary Robinson on my podcast. I think I'm going to need to take a week off to recover. If this is your first time listening to Ecolution, welcome along. We have a back catalogue of 52 episodes that you can delve into. From biodiversity to activism, farming to eco-anxiety, we've covered a whole lot and we still have a whole lot more to do. I think this series is particularly strong. Only kidding, I hope the leaving starts going well, James. If you could, like, review or follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. That really makes a difference. Ecolution is produced by Nikki Coughlin with edit assistance from Aoife O'Neill and presented by me, Evie Kenny, for RT Junior Radio. If you, your school or community are working on something you think we should talk about, get in touch, junior at rte.ie. This is Anne. RTE Junior!